Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Wednesday, the 9th of June. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Annika Smith-Herson. Annika, it's time to talk about the city you love. Yeah, Melbourne, as we edge closer to getting out of lockdown, fingers crossed, we're going to speak to a journo who's moved back from Washington to find a very different city in Melbourne than the one he left. It's just been quite striking coming back and seeing how divided Victoria is over this issue. It's like I left Donald Trump uh, with America in the Civil War and <laughs> come to a mini Civil War in Victoria. Yeah, there's political division. Um, there's also the psychological and economic pain of the four lockdowns. So we'll discuss how Melbourne can recover and whether it's just bruised or whether it's deeply scarred. That is today's briefing. First here are the big stories of the day, starting with the massive news from Melbourne. Yes, Tom, Melbourne's lockdown looks like it will end as planned on Thursday night, but city dwellers will still be stopped from going to regional areas this upcoming Queen's birthday long weekend. Victoria recorded just two community COVID cases yesterday. One was linked to the West Melbourne outbreak, the Delta outbreak, and the other one was from the Arcare nursing home cluster. Victorian health authorities finally tracked down the source of that West Melbourne outbreak unfortunately confirming it matched a case in hotel quarantine last month. I'm very surprised it got out, um, but uh, this is what we have and um, we need to uh, try and work out exactly what's happened here. That was Victoria's Deputy Chief Health Officer Alan Cheng speaking yesterday. Uh, Health authorities believe a Sri Lankan man brought the variant to Australia into hotel quarantine. As you heard there, they don't know what happened next and how it got out. But Annika, that is what's happened with a number of outbreaks. That was um, the case with the Avalon cluster in Sydney, for example. They never actually found the link from hotel quarantine to the community. Yeah, it's a little bit concerning, but they're getting high number of tests and not a lot of number of cases. So hopefully there was only one chain of transmission and it hasn't spread further. Look, if case numbers do remain low and there's no more mystery cases, Cabinet Ministers will meet again today to tick off on restrictions that will be announced later in the day. Those restrictions are expected to include density caps at home and at restaurants and mandatory mask wearing, but lockdown looks like it will be over. So you've been following this really closely. Um, Tell us how this process is working. It sounds like they made the decision last night, but it just needs the final checks before they announce it today. We're usually on a Thursday cycle. So this was initially announced on a Thursday and extended on a Thursday. So on the Tuesday, about 48 hours out, uh, they get presented with a number of scenarios. And look, it could all be blown out today out of the water if there was some huge outbreak or 30 cases or something. But look, we have had consistently a low number of cases. All of them are linked, which is really important. So all the Cabinet have to do once they get that information is tick off on the new restrictions. And it looks like we'll be going to uh, the level that regional Victoria are on now. So we don't get everything back, but compared to being trapped in your house and only having five reasons to leave, it'll be a much better weekend this weekend. So in your view, is that a fairly sensible outcome? They couldn't bounce back to uh, no restrictions. Mm. So it'll just depend, I guess, how quickly they get back to higher capacities because we do know those density limits do hurt restaurants and, and shops and some people don't even feel like it's beneficial opening. So I understand why they're doing it this weekend, but it'll be how quickly we actually reverse to the old Melbourne, what I was used to a few weeks ago after that. Well, speaking of the old Melbourne, we'll get deeper into that in today's briefing. The Billawilla family, who have been detained since 2019, 
are likely to be resettled in another country despite pleas from the family to return to Queensland after their daughter fell ill. There are two options that uh, are being looked at. Uh, I understand the United States is the first of those and that New Zealand is, uh, is also an option. That was Foreign Minister Maurice Payne speaking on Nine Radio yesterday. Uh, earlier in the day, Immigration Minister Karen Andrews had hinted a resolution to the situation could be in sight, but Annika, there are court proceedings going on at the same time. Yeah, that's what Scott Morrison hinted at yesterday, that they are waiting for some court proceedings to be finished. The family obviously want to stay and they're entitled to fight that in the court. This, of course, has come back into the public's attention yesterday after their youngest daughter was evacuated to that Perth hospital. Yeah, it's a pretty distressing situation. Here's the mother in the family, Priya, who um, released this video from her daughter's bedside. We hope that Anika can get the help she need now. Please help us to get her out of detention and home to Bilola. So given, you know, you followed the, this policy closely, do you expect the government will hold a pretty firm line here and only resettle them in another country? Yeah, they've already spent millions keeping them um, in detention and not allowing them to go back to Biloela. Uh There's definitely, I guess, in the government quietly, some people that feel terribly uncomfortable with what's happening. But it comes down to, I guess, the more attention this case gets, the government's argument is uh, the more it could be used as a, uh, a pull factor for um, asylum seekers trying to get here. They want to stop that trade is what they say, that they want to stop people smugglers mm. getting here. So that's why we have these third country settlement options. And um, I think this one's a terrible case and people feel so conflicted and hurt seeing, you know, a, a, a three-year-old not being over to get help for a suspected blood infection and, and being in such terrible conditions as not being home in Biloela. But I really don't think the government will sway on this unless there's a legal win for the family. I think they will end up in a third country. And the Prime Minister Scott Morrison will use a speech ahead of his trip to the G7 to warn of the growing risk of conflict in our region and a call for more cooperation between democracies. Ahead of his first face-to-face meeting with US President Joe Biden at the conference, Morrison will evoke America's leadership during the Cold War in calling for liberal democratic countries to work together. So you've been to a G7 before, haven't you? Yes, I have, a couple of them. Right. So, I mean, we're not really normally part of the G7. We've been invited as a as an extra delegate to this conference? Is that how it works? Yeah, the word G7, it used to be G8, actually refers to the seven biggest economies. Now, Australia isn't actually one of those, but we do fit within that sort of um, group of um, liberal democracies. We make it to the G20 when they hold the G20, which is the 20 biggest economies. So we have been invited in recent years as an observer, which is considered uh, quite a coup for Australia. And Scott Morrison has traditionally said he doesn't like these international talk fests, but he's pretty keen to get over there. And it's because you get to, you know, get face to face with Boris Johnson, with Angela Merkel, leading international leaders such as Joe Biden, and work out some of those issues that are really plaguing the world. Australian police are expecting an increase in bikie gang violence after a groundbreaking sting led to the arrest of more than 200 suspected drug criminals. The sting, called Operation Ironside, that was three years in the making, involved a phone app the police designed called Anom. Yeah, so the alleged drug traffickers thought that this app was a legitimate encrypted app where they could communicate in secret, but police were actually monitoring their messages and photos via the app. 
Essentially, we have been in the back pockets of organised crime and operationalised a criminal takedown like we have never seen. That was the AFP Commissioner Rhys Kershaw there. The operation culminated in raids across Australia yesterday morning and arrests in New Zealand and Europe. The Australian government, as part of a global operation, has struck a heavy blow. Amazing story, isn't that, Annika, that the police designed this app and somehow got these people to use it? Yeah, it's quite incredible, isn't it? And they thought it was encrypted, and it wasn't. And former AFL star Adam Goods has turned down an offer to be inducted into the AFL Hall of Fame. Goods' declining of the honour comes after he left the league in 2015 in the midst of the booing controversy. Yeah, so the AFL has apologised for that, probably a, a bit late in his mind. It clearly wasn't enough to get him to tank up this honour for the AFL. All right, in just a moment, we're going deep on Melbourne. Melbourne has been in first or second spot on the Economist's Livability Index for the past 10 years. For a while there, it was in the number one position for seven years in a row. But as Australia's cultural capital fights its way out of this fourth lockdown, we're asking, is it just bruised, a short-term thing, or is it scarred? And Annika, I guess this briefing topic has particular interest for you. Yeah, look, I lived most of the lockdown in the ACT, which was not affected at all. We had that short six-week sort of, Mm. if you can even call it a lockdown at the start. But of course, I moved back this year and I've done the two lockdowns since. They haven't been as long as the one last year, but I have found the city has not only changed, the people in it have changed. And I'm obviously not the only one that's felt this. Um, It's not just seen in numbers, you know. Yeah, there's fewer people in coffee shops and the bars aren't as busy on a Friday night in the CBD, but there doesn't seem to be the confidence in Melbourne that I knew before I left. Yeah, well, it's a very proud city and rightfully so. It's got an incredible arts and entertainment scene as well, of course, as the, the bars, restaurants, all the hospitality and the retail. Leading up to the pandemic, Melbourne was Australia's fastest growing city. As we said, it's now been overtaken by Brisbane. Its growth rate is at its lowest in a decade. Yeah, Melbourne experienced a 30% collapse in the number of people relocating to the city compared to before the pandemic. Uh, That was reflected in a net loss of 16,000 people during the third quarter of last year. So how long will this pain be felt and is it permanent? Cameron Stewart is a reporter for The Australian and he's just written a feature called It's Not the World's Most Livable City, Not By a Long Shot. Cameron, thanks for joining us. Now, you got back from Washington and when you came back to Melbourne, the city was back open. There were crowds at the MCG and the comedy festival was firing up and people were flooding to restaurants. But you've written that you noticed that there was something different about Melbourne. This is before the latest lockdown kicked in. So what had changed, do you think, from the Melbourne you left when you moved to the US? I noticed quite a few things were different early on. First of all, the politics. I noticed an incredible, almost a civil war, if you like, a deep divide between those who loved Dan Andrews, those who hated what he did with the lockdown last year. It was very few people in between, which was curious about whether a four-month lockdown, which was so unusual for any country in the world almost, had changed Melbourne in any way. Having lived um, myself last year in Canberra and moved back this year, it is a really divisive issue to bring up. It's sort of pitched as you're either for lockdown and you're for Victoria, or if you're against it, 
the only other option is for the virus to spread rapidly and you don't have any, any care should, you know, your grandma die. How do you think living away from that, especially in the libertarian capital, the United States, impacted how you have viewed this lockdown? Yeah, it's an interesting question because it definitely impacted me in the sense of living in America was totally libertarian. Of course, it were, there were there were very few rules. Now, I certainly don't advocate the American way. I lived through COVID in America last year. It was horrible. You know, I mean, people were falling like, like nine pins. It was a terrible way. And I'm not a sort of let them rip kind of person. But I was also sort of not a supporter of the of the incredible lockdown, of the notion of shutting down a city of five million people for five cases, which is what we're seeing more or less now. And one of the great ironies, I think, is um, I think Australia very much uh, won the war last year in the sense of getting on top of COVID after that terrible breakout. But I think it's possibly in danger of losing the peace this year because, for example, anyone in America who wants to get vaccinated has been vaccinated pretty much. They're living normal lives, whereas here in Melbourne, we're locked down at the moment for about five or six cases a day. So my theory on why this is so politically divisive is, and this is from an outside observational point of view, just want to put that out there, I haven't lived through any of these lockdowns in the same way Melbourneians have, except for the very first one, is that if you've been forced to live through those decisions that your leaders have made, you've made a personal, physical, emotional investment in those decisions. So then if you hear your leader, in this case, Dan Andrews, sort of attacked for those decisions, it's hard not to feel the emotion connected to that and not to take that personally. And that's why you get such strong reactions. What did you find? That's my theory. It hasn't really gone across political lines as far as I can tell. It really seems to be people are very different in different ways, but clearly the city is still uh, traumatised in, in quite a few ways. Um, the, you know, psychology, kids are going to psychologists, domestic violence, uh, the economy. There's a whole raft of measurements by which Melbourne is, is damaged by what happened during that four-month lockdown. And what I found when I wrote my articles was quite a bit of hostility in the sense of people, even uh, fellow journalists and friends of mine, just saying, you know, you have no idea. How can you say that? How can you question that? You know, uh, so I think people do invest a lot and they saw it very much as attacks on, on Melbourne and Victoria itself, which I thought was interesting. A lot has spoken about business confidence and obviously there's for lease signs and, and, you know, there's a lot of businesses that were once there that aren't there now. Is it a loss of confidence? The people have lost confidence in the city. It's kind of like a chicken and an egg thing. What what comes first? You know, do the businesses need confidence or do we need people coming back in to boost that confidence? Look, I think the businesses need confidence that they won't get closed down at a moment's notice for a sm- small outbreak. I think that's probably the first thing. But you're right, the four-month lockdown, Melbourneians understandably got into the habit of working from home more than the rest of Australia. And so other capital cities have a much higher office occupancy return rate than Melbourne does. And you can see that when you go into the CBD, as you say, Annika, it's it's very quiet. Look, it's such a fraught thing. I mean, I'm just really surprised, which I guess is my main point. Uh, it's just been quite striking coming back and seeing how divided Victoria is over this issue. It's like I left Donald Trump uh, with America in the Civil War and I've come to a mini civil war in Victoria. One thing about Melbourne compared to, say, a Sydney or other capital cities is the CBD was the hub too. It was alive. Some people I know in Melbourne are saying that they've seen more um, atmosphere now in their local suburbs. So do you think that perhaps Melbourne's future isn't the one you left and that the city won't have that same tone it used to have and that some of that activity will perhaps be moved to the suburbs? 
I mean, Melbourne CBD, uh, it will come back. I think it will come back to some degree. It's not dead. It's not going to be like those horrible American cities that have a rotting CBD. I think people aren't just going to come back to five days a week in the office. They'll come back to probably four, three, depending on their work. And that will still be a hard for the CBD to recover fully. So I think it's going to be a very slow process. Cameron Stewart there. Let's get the perspective of a small business owner, uh, Alex Dyson, who's the host of the All Day Breakfast podcast with Matt O'Kine, also part of the listener family with The Briefing. Um, he does that, but he also runs a small comedy bar in the Melbourne CBD. It's called Comedy Republic. Dyson, do you think Melbourne's bruised or scarred? Oh, I tell you what, there's, it's certainly maimed in some way, Tom. <laughs> um, just walking along the street where Comedy Republic is, the four lease signs are, um, are pretty brutal to see. Like even Starbucks has picked up all their venties and rushed out of there. So wow. it's pretty sad. Um, however, there are a few COVID testing pop-up sites there now. So at least there's a bit more <laughs> foot traffic in the CBD these days. How much do you think the impact of when a few of your favourite bars or businesses start to go poorly and eventually close, how much impact does that have on the wider city of people not wanting to actually come into the CBD anymore? If we are going to be taking these, um, you know, dark trips back into lockdown, which I'm absolutely not against, but when it's open and when there's no COVID in the community, still suppressing businesses <laughs> rather than the virus uh, with these restrictions, I find very tricky as a, as a business owner, I'm sure many other hospitality people do, when you are working on such fine margins, you know, particularly in the restaurant industry, they say it's like three, four, five percent your profit margin is. And mm. so any little bit of, uh, yeah, restriction can be absolutely devastating. What can Melbournians or Victorians or even once the borders open, the rest of Australians actually do? We, we keep getting told we've actually got more money in our pocket after COVID. So where can we spend it? Where can we target it? And how can we help businesses? Alex's bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come to Comedy Republic. That's uh, beyond that's that. Really <laughs> when it happens, obviously supporting a business with um, purchasing their products, doing your best to help out with where you can. Don't delay things, particularly if you've bought tickets to a show and a lot of people in the music industry Sure, it's a two-week lockdown, so all the shows during that week are cancelled, but they're cancelling for weeks and weeks afterwards because there's no guarantee that we'll be back to uh, 100% capacity or a profitable capacity to put on a show for a month, two months. Who knows how long that's going to last. Do you think it's just those practical things that mean the city won't bounce back as quickly as, as many would hope? Or do you think there's a deeper psychological, emotional pain or suffering that, that means Melbourne will struggle for longer than we might expect? I think that pain is there and I know that because sitting in Comedy Republic, you'll have comedians on stage, they'll say who is not from Melbourne and so when things are open, people can come down if there's a few whoops and um, then the person on stage says they don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) There's a laughter from the crowd because you're right. It's like we've had people turn up. They say, I I didn't realise. I had no idea. I mean, the middle lockdown for Victoria was 111 days. Add that to the, you know, six or so weeks on the top, another five-day lockdown, another 14-day lockdown. In the last, you know, year and a bit, we've had... 160 days plus of stage four, four reasons to leave home lockdown. And so I think there's certainly um, probably a hard to detect pain that is just going to be sitting around for a while. I, I do feel Melbourneans are that in which they can share it. They can use it as a badge of honour alongside the coffee and the trams and uh, they can get on with things. And I'm certainly hopeful for the future that um, we'll be able to smile at it and have a, use it as a shared experience. 
And if you want to hear more of Alex's pain and his jo- <laughs> and his jokes, you can listen to his podcast, the All Day Breakfast with Matt O'Kine, which is a daily and very great podcast here on the Listener app as well. Occasionally from my attic in these <laughs> in these instances, but other than that, go in the studio and hopefully see you, Tom Tilly. That was Alex Dyson. So, Annika, what do you think? Is it is it the practical stuff about reopening, or is there a a psychological, emotional pain or, or even the political divisiveness that will mean the city's hamstrung for a lot longer than you'd expect. I'd like to say it was bruised. Um, I think there are some big structural problems that are going to take a long time to fix. I do worry that people won't do those weekends in Melbourne as they used to. Um, they'll go elsewhere. And despite Melbourne's terrible weather and uh, <laughs> its uh, sometimes pretentious attitude, it always <laughs> had such a draw card to other people. People loved having a weekend in Melbourne. I loved Melbourne. It's my home state. I've lived here most of my life. I went to uni here. It's not the same. Uh, and I do fear that it's not going to bounce back as quick as we all thought. Okay, tomorrow on The Briefing, the big developments in the Wuhan lab theory. Listener.